dissertation to award-winning book. Thinking about the audience was the main impetus behind so many of the changes in this book. A conversation with Jennifer Bennell about her book, Reclaiming the Dawn, an environmental history of Toronto's Dawn River Valley. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 54 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. In 2008, I interviewed Jennifer Bennell about her work on the environmental history of the Don River Valley. It was the first episode of this podcast. Uh, my name is Jennifer Bennell. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Toronto, and I'm working on a dissertation on the social and environmental history of the Don River in Toronto. Back then, Bennell was a doctoral student at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at University of Toronto, working on her dissertation. Today, she's an assistant professor of history at York University and the author of Reclaiming the Dawn, an environmental history of Toronto's Dawn River Valley, a multiple award-winning book. How did this project go from dissertation to book? What was the process like? What new research did she conduct? What choices did she make in the revisions and editing? Professor Brunel spoke with me at an event last spring at York University in the Department of History to share her journey from dissertation to book. All right, so to get things started, I want to talk about the dissertation itself. Um, at the outset, at the planning stage, and I think a lot of the students here, uh, some of the students here might be thinking about their dissertation proposals perhaps, um, when you were laying out your research plan, did you have a book in mind or were there other factors in terms of the dissertation that you had to keep in mind when you were designing the dissertation? Um, well, I'll start by saying that uh, I don't think I had a clear um, sense in my mind of the structure of any future book. Certainly when I was starting the dissertation research, um, the book really emerged from the very latter stages of that research process. The, the project was originally conceived of as an oral history, actually, and I planned to... Um, go out and interview a whole bunch of people about their experiences of the Don River, I realized I would probably end up with sort of 50 stories of decline. Um, so that was part of my decision to move away from an oral history. Uh, I also discovered the richness of what existed in, in the archives on the Don, and so that really shaped the project. In terms of a future book, um, there was a real tension between whether this could become an academic book or not, and certainly that's what I had in mind for this project. But I was approached by um, several trade presses, Fitzhenry Whiteside and, and Dundurn Press, and they told me in no uncertain terms, um, this will never be this will never be published as an academic book. This is a local history. Um, we'd like to publish your book, and we'll happily offer you an advance. And why would you turn that down? Um, How early did that happen? Was it when you were a graduate student or after you graduated? No, when I was a graduate student. Oh. Uh, just when I started to do some public speaking on the Don, so I had some midway through my research process. Yeah. When my research was starting to get a little bit of local press, um, I was approached by these publishers. And yeah, um, it was a bit of a demoralizing process in a way because they, 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 were, they could not see an academic book emerging out of this. So that was certainly in my mind is to essentially how not to write a local history about um, a river valley in the city I was living. So when you were planning your dissertation, you were thinking about 
research methods, what sources you might have available more so than you were thinking about. How many chapters should be in a book that's about 200 pages long? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking about what are the requirements of the dissertation, yeah. um, how to wrangle this mass of information I was finding in the archives. Um, and really the, the dissertation chapters just emerged from um, the themes that rose to the top in, in all those hours spent in the archives where I was really just looking for anything that mm-hmm. pertained to the river. Okay. Um, so homelessness comes to the surface in this book because I found records on homelessness. Um, the fact that the book focuses mainly on the Lower River is because the documents that I found pertained largely to the Lower River. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you're finished your dissertation, you graduate, you've defended it. What were for you some of the first steps toward publishing it as a book in terms of revisions to the dissertation. How did you start? Where did you begin? Did you wait a little while mm. after you graduated? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the first place I began. Um, not really out of any plan, um, but out of the need to make some income. <laughs> um, after, after defending, uh, I took a job with the History Education Network for about a year and put the dissertation entirely on hold. And I think that was actually, looking back, really valuable to take a really, you know, good long period away from looking at, you know, from looking at something that I'd been so intimately involved with for for all the years of the research and writing. So setting it aside, I think, was the first step. Um, (laughs) That's good. That's encouraging. Yeah. Do nothing on it. Do nothing. Coming back to it, I think there's this there's this initial gleeful hacking and slashing of, of footnotes, um, of excessive um, justifications that you find your dissertation writing does so much of, needing to place it in the literature, needing to sort of um, make apologies for yourself and why you're taking this particular slant, all that goes. Um, so that very first approach to the dissertation with a pen is really fun um, and really sort of cathartic because you're just hacking and slashing and stuff is being dumped. Um, The other main thing I had to do uh, with this dissertation was one of the things that emerged in my defense and uh, Professor Viv Nellis was my external examiner. He he said in his, you know, um, very sort of eminent way, how is it that you can write, you know, a history of the valley without talking about the Don Valley Parkway, which runs right through this valley? And it was a major omission of the dissertation and something I felt I couldn't really wrap my head around how to, how to write a history of a, of a highway mm-hmm. when I was very much more interested in um, people's, you know, long-term relationship with this valley in other ways. What I found to my delight was actually researching that story, which is something I did after the dissertation, heading back to the archives, was actually one of the most pleasurable um, pieces of research I did because, of course, it's a huge part of people's experience with the valley is um, both the story of how that highway developed and people's experience of it afterwards. So so there's an entirely new there's entirely new research that went into the book. Yes. Um, and that Don Valley Parkway is one of the biggest new additions. Yeah, there's entirely new research that went into the book and I think after having done all, all the initial research and then set it aside, coming back I was very very focused in that piece of research. So it didn't feel so much like, you know, 
uh, random scrambling at the archives and seeing what I found. I knew what I wanted to go look for. I had a much clearer sense of where I would find it. And so doing that additional piece of research, even though it might feel like, oh, God, you know, back (laughs) to square one, back to the archives, it was a much more streamlined process. Um, so those were first steps. There's a lot more changes in the book that we can talk about. Okay. Um, I, I do want to just follow up on that question about first steps. When you're, when you're talking about getting in there and gleefully pulling a lot of the dissertation stuff out, lengthy footnotes, historiographical statements and justifications, what kind of guidance did you have? Did you have a general sense of what needed to be pulled out? Was a publisher telling you what needed to be pulled out? Were um, colleagues or former supervisors telling you? Yes, the publisher provides you with this, which is this <laughs> lovely um, the thesis and the book. Um, you know, when you get to this stage, you'll you might be handed a book like this, or you might be handed this very book. It's sort of dated in tone and written by academics of another generation. It's published in 1976 originally. Um, so you feel like you're being talked to by someone in his his comfortable <laughs> armchair. There are some women who contribute to this book. Um, but it's very, very useful because they identify what are the sort of seven deadly sins of the dissertation. Um, and, you know, you start to see those in your own work. Do they ever nail it in terms of the kinds of things you need to remove from your dissertation? And I think a few of the things that really stood out for me in that was they talk about redundancy. Mm. Um and redundancy can be in the form of excessive footnotes. Yeah. It can be in the, in the form of structural redundancies, like, oh, actually, I've already talked about that whole development in this early chapter. Do I need to pick it up and talk about it again here? Or can we kind of put those things together? Yeah. So structural redundancy. Also, um, you'll find yourself just forgetting that, yeah, you, yeah, you already talked about that. There it is again. <laughs> Um, this is such a lengthy piece of writing. It's right? such a lengthy piece of writing, and you've you haven't been as disciplined, I don't yeah. think, in writing it as you must be in writing the book. So that's one thing. The other thing is tone, and they're very good at addressing what are the problematic aspects of tone in the dissertation compared to the book. And one of those things is a sort of apologetic approach, like feeling like I'm really new at this, and I'm I'm not really. You know, I'm saying this, but I'm not really saying this. I'm, I'm trying to conclude that this... You remove all that kind of apologetic, um, uncertain language that dissertations tend to be full of. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the nice advice I got from colleagues was, you know, your readers don't have any time for that. They're looking to you as a guide. You're the authority. They don't want to see any wavering yeah. in that authorial voice in the book. They want, they want to know that you're a trustworthy guide through this material, so you just have to make strong statements of argument. Um, so tone is, is, is another thing. Um, dissertations can sometimes have a bit of more of an arrogant tone as well. Like, you know, I've read all this and I know all this. You're trying to prove yourself to your committee. Um, the book really has to be careful about that, and it has to be understanding that your reader is an intelligent reader and that you are trusting that they are. Um, So the book is invaluable in thinking about how you're really repackaging your dissertation work to be a book. Um, In terms of of who assisted me, in terms of colleagues, I have to give a big shout-out to Steve Penfold Um, (laughs) (laughs) because Steve, who was my internal external on the committee, so we'd already read the dissertation, we assume. Yeah. Um, 
he read the entire thing again. So he read my revised manuscript, and he helped me in, in, in just massive ways to repackage this book. He yeah. really helped me see how I could repackage chapters, and he guided me in that whole idea of, you need, a, you, know, you need to really clarify your argument here. You need to state it up front. You need to thread it all the way through and repeat, repeat, repeat your mm-hmm. argument. Find ways to illustrate it. And tell your reader again and again. So. so that's interesting. I think this is a common experience that um, the uh, external examiners on your dissertation could be very helpful allies in the future for your revisions because there are at least two individuals who have read the entire dissertation, but they weren't a part of the process of making the dissertation, so they've seen it fresh from yes. start to finish. Yeah, and Steve was also super helpful in helping me find an academic press in that he had recently worked with Lan Husband at U of T Press. They know each other. He went in and said, I just, you know, read this dissertation that I thought was really good. And uh, I, had, I had, you know, a real um, door open for me with the University of Toronto Press through, through him. Yeah. So, yeah, I did want to ask about finding a publisher. Um, there'll be all kinds of experiences for new scholars who are taking a dissertation manuscript, revising it into a book manuscript, and trying to find a publisher. It may be going to your annual meeting of your scholarly association, meeting with publishers at the book fair or something like that. Did you do any of that, or were you making phone calls or submitting proposals? I was really lucky. I mean, I think through one of the things I'd say as as grad students – is I use those grad student years to do a lot of networking. My supervisor is uh, Ruth Sandwell, um, is a legendary networker. So um, <clears throat> she introduced me to a lot of colleagues. So conferences, um, workshops, things like that over the years, the network of, of niche really helped me build um, a, a network of, of peers and mentors. Um, they helped in helping me decide where to publish. And mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. I, I looked at, at UBC Press, and they were interested in this book. My supervisor suggested I go with U of T Press for the reasons of the subject of this book, in that um, <clears throat> she felt that going with a local, a local university press would help to promote this book to a wider Toronto audience. And mm-hmm. in my early conversations with the U of T Press, they not only promised um, to respect the the visual nature of this book and to allow for you know forty images um, and some color images in mm-hmm. in the end they they ended up um, providing um, but they also promised to support it in terms of uh, a local book launch um, and to help me at various events like Word on the street so it made sense to go with a publisher based in Toronto. Now, earlier on, when you were a graduate student, you were getting a sense that it might possibly be difficult to publish uh, a book that's perceived as local history with a, an academic press. At what point do you <coughs> think you... Did you gain any kind of confidence at a certain point that this was a manuscript that would be appropriate to be published with a scholarly press? I think my committee was certainly supportive and encouraging and felt that I would be able to get it published, but it really wasn't until... Steve um, put the wind in my sails and said, I think U of T would really like this. And then it wasn't until Len Husband, what you originally do in... in, um, And Len's the acquisitions editor. Len's the acquisitions editor at U of T Press, Press, exactly. So I didn't do a lot of the book fair, um, Mm -hmm. um, speaking to publishers at conferences. Steve gave me the in. I wrote to Len. He asked to see the introduction, um, table of contents, and a sample chapter. Okay. 
And then he wrote back and was really excited. And it really wasn't until that moment, I think, that I thought, okay, this is going to go. This is going to be an academic book, which I needed for my you know, future career. So we've already talked about the new chapter on the Don Valley Parkway. What were some of the other substantial changes that you had to make? Maybe some of the painful changes, perhaps, in terms okay. of revisions. The first was the title. I don't know if any of you have stumbled upon the dissertation um, in the electronic universe, but it was um, called, um, what was it called? Imagine Futures and Unintended Consequences, an Environmental History of Toronto's Don River Valley. So what a mouthful. <laughs> um, and sort of a, uh, the first part of the title, Imagine Futures and Unintended Consequences, what does that really mean? So scrapping that level of complexity in the title and um, going with Reclaiming the Dawn, which, um, for those of you familiar with the book, captures both the various groups over time who aim to use this river to fulfill their own visions for the river valley and the city, but also my own attempt as, a, as an author to um, give this river its due in the broader history of the city, so reclaiming this place. Um, so that that was a, a, a nice change that I was happy with right from the beginning. Did you come up with the name? Or yes. Some suggestions? Yes, okay. I did. And I, and I was told that the publishers might not, the publishers tend to suggest titles. In this case, they did go with my title, which was nice. Um, other changes. So the inclusion of the DVP chapter, yes. Um, a big repackaging of the front end of the book. So um, the dissertation... Uh, I don't. I wanted to bring a copy. Unfortunately, it must be buried in some box in my basement. I couldn't find it. Um, yeah, I tended to be sort of trying to be sort of cute and lyrical or something in the in you know part one headwaters, part two channels and pools, river as corridor, river as place. So you'll notice in the in the table of contents here, it's really stripped down and simplified. No colons. Um, simple uh, chapter titles, no part divisions. So just simplifying the structure. um, I took part of three chapters in my dissertation, chapters, my introduction, chapters two and three, turned that into a chapter on the Colonial River. Mm. Steve really helped me. This is compressing. Compressing and making a clear distinction between the colonial period and the Aboriginal and early settlement history of the river and the industrial um, industrialization of the river, which is in a separate chapter. So helping me to, to really distinguish these major periods in, in the development and in, in people's relationship with this river, completely reworked introduction. So an introduction that actually really defines clearly my arguments, and that was probably one of the hardest pieces to write. I think um, in the dissertation, you sort of, at least in my case, um, it was sort of a splat of a bunch of ideas, the introduction, <laughs> and you realize how crucial the introduction is. It yeah. might be all that a lot of readers actually look at in your book, and you know this from, from you know, reading for your <laughs> comps list, right? Be honest. <laughs> um, the, the, the introductions are so important. This book now has a conclusion. My dissertation just sort of petered out with um, looking at um, 21st century uh, planning process for the mouth of the river, with some sort of concluding comments, this now has a separate and thoughtful conclusion. Those were definitely the hardest pieces of writing that required the most reworking, um, the most uh, streamlining, was mm. to write a really solid and punchy introduction. 
Um, and I read a lot of other introductions of books that I felt were, were really exemplary in that. Um, and that was part of that process. How do you, how do you build these things? Yeah. And reading, reading around authors you really respect was, was one way to do that. And then, you know, you, you, you come in the end to look at this dissertation that's out there still publicly and electronically out there. I wish it wasn't. Um, <laughs> as this kind of albatross, because a lot of people still access it because it's mm-hmm. free. Um, and you, you want to say, read the book. Um, the, the other things that are new, I paid uh, a professional um, cartographer to develop the maps for this book. And that was a decision I was really happy with because working with him to try to represent the information I wanted these maps to um, present was really a really nice experience and I think really added to the book. Um, so yeah, those are the, the main changes, that new chapter, repackaging. Um. I didn't have this written as one of my questions, but it occurred to me that one of the, the biggest differences of the experience of writing a dissertation and the experience of writing a book is that you go through a process of anonymous peer review. Yes. With your book manuscript, did the peer review result in substantial revisions to the manuscript? What was the experience like working with anonymous peer reviewers? I'd say my experience, uh, my unusual experience, I think, of working with Steve Penfold first, that was where most of the dramatic changes to the book happened. Okay. By the time we sent it out for peer review, um, it was in pretty good shape and it mm-hmm. was it was well received. Um, I did... I actually didn't accept all the changes that the peer reviewers asked for. Um, um, one of them was a geographer who was asking for um, a more geographical language that would appeal to an audience of geographers. And I mean, this book certainly crosses those lines. It can be considered a historical geography of this river. And I didn't, the language felt too theoretical, and I was aiming for a, a broader public audience for this book. So um, that was one of the changes that, that, I, that I didn't adopt. Um, certainly, uh, many, of, many of the suggestions of the peer reviewers helped make the book a better book. Yeah. Um, and uh, so those two processes of review certainly changed the book um, for the better, I'd say. Now, you've hinted at this already, but obviously the audience for a book is different than the audience for a dissertation, which is a relatively small audience of your committee primarily, and then whoever else happens to find it later on down the road. Uh, What's the audience that you envisioned for this book, and how did that influence the process of making this book? Yeah, I think the audience for the dissertation is your small committee, Um, and uh, really the thinking about the audience really changed was was the main impetus behind so many of the changes in this book mm-hmm. so i was looking for certainly a local toronto educated public audience was was one uh target audience for this book and another being um environmental historians historical geographers urban historians primarily in north america although the book um certainly has been picked up by by river historians even beyond that okay so Biggest surprise, most unexpected part of the process of turning a dissertation into a book. Oh, I had no idea what an editor, what an editor does at a university <laughs> press. I assumed they would edit the book. They don't do any of that. Um, I, I thought, why are they called editors? But essentially, they are, um, they are sort of acquisition managers, mm-hmm. at least in, in, in my experience, in that they really are champions for your book if they've taken it on. They 
um, help you, you know, go through the process of, of receiving funding to support the publication of the book. Um, they guide the peer review. They guide the peer review. They help, they help you through that peer review process in terms of looking through your responses to the peer reviewers and giving you some support if you feel like, I'm not sure about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do not give you any sort of overall um, structural edits on the book whatsoever. That's entirely done by your peer reviewers. And then there's a copy editor at the end process. How was that? The copy editing was, was, was good. It was useful, um, helped build consistencies in the book in terms of language. Mm-hmm. And then did you work at all with the design editor in terms of the layout for the images? You said there's color inserts in the book. There's color inserts for the book, which um, initially I had to find the funding for. In the end, the, the press was able to cover it. Um, that was one... Um, in terms of, of things I might do differently, I spent a ton of time um, formatting images for this book. There's something like 34 images, I think, and four maps. Um, you know, uh, the, the formats, whether they're TIFFs or JPEGs and all that stuff about lossy images. And I spent a lot of time researching what all this was about and trying to meet the press's requirements for images, mm-hmm. only to find out after spending several weeks on this that there's actually a staff person at the press that could have done all that for me. <laughs> so um, the communication with your team that's publishing the book yeah. is, is really important. Um, but you are responsible to get the image permissions for the uh, image images. permissions are that's entirely new authors are entirely your don't always know yeah. yes um, the other surprise I guess I had was when they say nothing moves until we have everything they really mean that like they they don't want you to submit the final manuscript and then a bunch of images and then a few more images a few weeks later nothing happens until they have absolutely everything and so I ended up delaying the publication of the book by about six months because I was waiting on this one set of image permissions by a particularly sticky um, agency. And uh, as a result, the book was supposed to come out in the spring. It had to come out in the fall because I didn't realize that they would do nothing. They wouldn't even look at my manuscript until they had the entire package. So, Well, I think we got a, a number of really useful insights here uh, from your experience. And I've heard from other new authors very similar remarks to what you made here, uh, Jennifer. And I want to thank you for sharing them with us. Thank you. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jennifer Bennell and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and any other place where great podcasts can be found, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast by leaving comments or writing a short review on our iTunes page. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.